through Colossians chapter 2. If you would stand to your feet this morning for the reading of God's word. And we'll be reading out of the New King James this morning. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have your word as a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. God, we are in need of your guidance, of your direction, of your voice in our lives. Because, God, there's so many other voices. There's so many other thoughts and directions and words that are jockeying for our attention, God, are calling for our attention. So, Lord, today we pray that you would give us a laser focus on your word. Help us tune out everything except your voice, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to Solace Church this morning. And as always, I pray, God, that that would happen. But now, as I'm going to open my mouth and speak your word, I pray, Lord, it would be your word. And anything that's not of you, let it fall to the ground. But may, God, your word come forth in power now so that I, Lord, can get out of the way and your spirit can speak to your people. We invite you to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So, man, we have been going through this letter to the Colossian church for, you ready for this? Eight weeks now. Eight weeks now. Um, and listen, the scriptures are rich enough, enough, they're deep enough, they're full of substance enough for us not to rush through. And so what we've been saying about the book of Colossians is that we're taking the scenic route, all right? This is not I-95 with burnt trees on the left and right, and maybe every now and then a gas station and a big McDonald's arc, okay? We're thinking of this more like the Pacific Coast Highway, the Almafi Coast in Italy. This is a scenic view. Maybe we're driving to Key West. Who knows? But we're enjoying the view of Jesus that Paul is giving us here and to this church. We've entitled this series, Established. That really seems to be the thing that Paul is seeking for God to do in this church. That they wouldn't be a church that's tossed to and fro. That they wouldn't be a church that are out of sorts or out of whack, but that they would be established in the things of God. And we certainly see that clearly in the section we just read. But most importantly, what we see here in Colossians 2, as we break into this chapter, is we see a bit of a shift in this letter. A bit of a change that takes place. And it was a segue from chapter 1 into chapter 2. Now chapter 1 is a little bit more, you could say, positive. It's kind of like Brother Paul. Oh, I gotta love Brother Paul. He's sharing encouraging truths about Jesus. He's sharing affirming truths about the church. He's saying things like, man, you guys are awesome. You're a community of faith, hope, and love. And he says, I'm praying for you that you would know God's will. I'm praying for you that you would be strengthened. And then he just starts giving thanks to Jesus for all that, that, that he's done. And then he starts going on this Christology of who Jesus is. And then there's this shift, where he moves from Brother Paul to who we know him as the Apostle Paul. 
And this shift, it takes place on this segue that we looked at last week where Paul goes from some affirmations now to some self-descriptions of his own calling in ministry. He's making a segue here. He says, you know, guys, my ministry in life, Paul goes on to say, is not just to preach the gospel. It's not just to preach Christ. It's to lead every man, to lead every woman onto maturity in Christ. That was Paul's mission in life. Not just to make converts, but to make disciples. To see to it that every believer that has put their faith in Jesus, they weren't just led to pray a prayer and then left by the wayside, but that they were brought into community and led along in maturity. This is God's will for all of us, that we would grow, that we would mature. The way that Paul says is that we would measure up to the stature of Christ. That's the goal. Looking more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves every day. Anybody want some of that? I definitely need some of that. More and more like Jesus and less and less like Andrew every day. That was Paul's mission. Now, the reason why Paul was saying that, that his ministry was for the spiritual growth and edification of others was because, well, there is some, some real business that Paul had to get down to for this church. And this serious business that Paul had to get down to, it, it pertained to things that you could say were stunting this church's spiritual growth. You ever had your spiritual growth stunted by something? Maybe you plateaued. Maybe you kind of went back. Or another way to say it is, is Paul's going to deal with some things that are affecting the church's spiritual health. Have you ever had your spiritual health out of whack? Well, Paul has such a heart for this church that he's going to do so much more than tell them what they want to hear. He's going to lovingly get into the mess with them. True ministry. Not diagnosing the mess and speaking the solution. Here's how you fix it. Go take a bath. The Apostle Paul, as a servant of Jesus, reflecting the Jesus he serves, he gets into the mess. He's in a prison cell writing this letter. And he begins by saying this. Did you see verse 1? He says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, a neighboring church, for as many as have not seen my flesh. Now, we saw this, my face in the flesh. Now, we, we looked at this last week, this amazing description of Paul's heart for ministry, um, which I don't know if anybody in this room could be able to say this. I want to be able to say this. I want you to be able to say this. But Paul is saying, listen, I've never met you. I've never seen you. This church has never seen Paul in the flesh. They've never seen him face to face. They know him through their pastor, Epaphras. But Paul says, even though I've never met you, even though I've never seen you, your conflict is my conflict. What you're going through, I'm going through. I feel what you're feeling. It's amazing to love someone this way. You don't even know them, but you care for their soul. You care so much about the things of God and the kingdom of God and the well-being of God's people that even though you've never met them, he goes, I have a conflict. And, and Paul, in these next two chapters, he's going to break down the different conflicts, the different things that has been conflicting him as this church has been potentially tempted to veer away from Jesus. Now, there's a handful of things that we're going to look at. But the first thing that Paul gets into as he describes his conflict for this church is he describes the danger of deception. The danger of deception that's facing this church. That's sort of the big idea of verses 1 through 10. And it's found there in verse 8. Did you see what he said? Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, verse 8, according to the basic principles of this world and not according to Christ. Paul is talking about something called healthy fear. Did you know there's such thing as healthy fear? It's been said the only thing to fear is fear itself. Nope. <laughs> it can be said the only thing that we should fear is God himself. There's such thing as healthy fear. The Proverbs describe the fear of the Lord, godly fear, as the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Here's where you start. Start at A. Fearing God. Healthy fear. Paul's talking about healthy fear. A recognizing fear. He's not talking about an unhealthy fear. There's unhealthy fear. What we could call maybe a paralyzing fear. You ever been paralyzed by fear? Paralyzed? Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 that God has not given you a spirit of fear. No, no, no. 
That's unhealthy. We don't want to be paralyzed from walking in the things of God. We don't want to fear the things of this world. That, there's an unhealthiness to that. But what Paul is talking about is not an unhealthy fear, a paralyzing fear. He's talking about a healthy, recognizing fear. He uses this great word that I think as Christians we need to hear in church every now and then. And it's this age-old word, beware. Beware. Now, it's not really what we want to hear, right, on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Welcome to church. You better watch out. It's like, all right. You know, it kind of brings back as a kid playing in the neighborhood, and there's that one house with that one dog with that one sign, beware of dog. You, know, you didn't know the whole time, it's just a chihuahua, right? <laughs> but, but this is what Paul's getting at. Now, it's not something we're used to hearing, right, in church. You want to hear things like, believe, be strong, be you, do you, right? Paul goes, beware. A healthy warning. How many of you guys have ever found in your life the value of a healthy warning from someone? You ever got that? Watch out. Watch out. Those are, those are loving friends that will give you those bewares. Not just the BUs, but, but watch out. And there's something specific here that Paul is warning this church about. He's leading them to watch out and be careful not to be, he says, cheated. Not to be, and the big idea here is deceived. Deceived. Paul's heart for this church is that they would not be deceived. You know, there's nothing worse than getting deceived getting tricked and and it starts as simple as your little brother who pranks you i was the little brother that pranked my sister all the time growing up it's some some stuff that's more serious i mean there's a, a lot of deceptions just in our world this is not a new idea the idea of deception is not foreign to us we live in a culture where deception's running rampant not just spiritually but every day you could go on facebook you could turn on the news and you could be warned about another scam that's out there right every day there's another scam there's another deception um, some of the big ones that come to mind. Uh, first, you have these email scams. You ever got the email from the Nigerian prince? You ever met him? <laughs> and it's usually something like, I have all this money, and I, I don't know what to do with it, and I'm looking for someone to give it to. Wow, that sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Especially when they say, so here's what I need. I, I, I need your bank information. So that I can wire you the funds. And actually, here's what I really need. Some of them say, send me X amount of money, and then I'll double it. And it's, to us, it's kind of humorous that we'd be getting an email from the Prince of Nigeria asking us for money. But for a lot of people, they fall victim to these scams. People, people sincerely have lost valuables, possessions to these things. What about telephone scams? A lot of different telephone scams out there, too. I don't know what it is lately. I don't know who is blowing up, like, my phone. Someone got my number and let everyone know what it is. And it's every day it's a different state. And the hard part is I have family out of state, so I don't know if I'm declining them and offending them, you know, or answering a scammer. There was a really um, prominent one in South Florida for a while. It was, a, it was called the telephone grandparent scam. Did you hear about this thing? Where somebody, a scammer, would call a grandparent, these, these crooks would call a senior citizen and they would pretend to be their grandson or their granddaughter. So grandma would answer the phone and on the other line, some Nigerian prince is going, grandma, you know? And, and the response is usually, well, is that you? Yes, it's me, it's me. I'm in jail. I need you to bail me out. Here's some money. And then a friend will call and pretend to be a police officer to validate the call. Deception, deception. You, you see, the big idea of deception is the tragedy and the bitterness of being led to believe a lie and the horrible effects of what that could cost you. And Paul is speaking to the horrible effects of what deception can cause in a church, what it can cost in a church, what it can cost for a Christian. It will cost you to be deceived. That's why the Bible commands us. Galatians 6, 9 says, do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 9, a great command. Don't do it. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. The way Paul says it is beware. Watch out. Make sure you're not 
deceived. Um, can you throw up the verse, Tim? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the scripture there, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where, where Paul writes this to the church of Corinth. He says, but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. This is the idea. Satan is a deceiver. And if he can't get you with front door sin, front door rebellion, front door, door denial of the person of Jesus, he likes to sneak in the back door in a disguise and often comes right into the middle of a church. And it's here a little, there a little. Sprinkle a little lie there, a little lie there, and it's often in our own thoughts. Come on. Deception. And Satan, just as he tempted Eve, we're tempted away from the simplicity of Jesus. That's Paul's heart for this church, that they wouldn't be led away. Did you notice it also? I want you to look at verse 4, how he says it. In, in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 4, he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Paul's saying, here's my heart for you guys, that as a people you would watch out for the persuasiveness of some arguments that will itch your ears and start to make a little sense, and, and it's disguised, as a, it's a lie disguised in truth. My heart for you is not to be deceived. Now, depends on who you read. Depends on which commentator uh, or Bible scholar. There is much debate and in conversation today around what was really going on in this church to where Paul had to say these things like an apostolic authority. Why, why was, what was going on? It's known as the Colossian heresy. This is usually what comes along with uh, anybody who studied the book of Colossians. You'll immediately hear of the Colossian heresy. And for the most part, we, we kind of have seen in chapter 1, right, that Paul has been on a mission to proclaim truth to this church. Like the explanation that he gives of Jesus in chapter 1 is unparalleled in any of his other letters. It's kind of like Paul is on a mission, and, he, and he's kind of been rather casual about it. Like, you know, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Did you know that? Yeah. Did you know that all things were made by him and through him, and nothing without him was made that was made? And also everything was made for him, and also everything consists in him. Did you know that? Yep. Did you know that, that all things are reconciled to God through him, through his flesh? And Paul's been kind of subtle, just proclaiming Jesus. But, but this mission now comes to a forefront because the Colossian church, they had some many... They had many issues. They had many deceptions creeping in. Now, nobody knows, was this a sect in the church? Which usually starts with one person that, that starts to wander. And they bring someone else to what they discovered, this new revelation. And slowly but surely, it, it spreads. And we don't know exactly what it looked like. Was it outside sources? We, we don't know. We don't even know exactly what the heresy was. Now, we can kind of pick up what the problem was based on Paul's solutions. So many scholars believe that based on a lot of Paul's solutions here in Colossians 2, he's talking a lot about the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. What you have here in Coloss was the early stages of what's known as Gnosticism, which doesn't get officially branded and titled to a few years later, but Gnosticism was this mystic idea of the spiritual elites, the Gnostics, that believed that there could be no connection between the spiritual and the physical realm. That everything spiritual was good and everything physical was bad. Contradicts God's word, which says that God created the earth and he said that it is, it's good. But, but they took this to new heights when they said things like, Jesus wasn't God in the flesh because God could never take on flesh. Jesus was just an emanation of God. Wasn't God himself, but was just some sort of, almost like Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, hologram kind of thing. Princess Leia hologram kind of thing. This doctrine that was leading them to be unsure of who Jesus was. Then you also see this sort of mixture in this church. It was this, this Gnosticism that was also coupled together with this Jewish mysticism. This legalism. We're going to talk next week about legalism that crept into this church. And it looks something like this. This is what the doctrine generally looked like. You're a Christian. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, me too. When, so tell me about your story. Oh, you came to faith in Jesus through a, wow, what a credible testimony. You've come to know Jesus. That's great. It's great you learned about Jesus. Have you learned about that new add-on, though, that new doctrine? Have you heard? Like, I know, I know you got, but have you heard of the next level? Are you, what level are you at? Oh, you're a new believer. Oh, okay, okay. 
Well, I'm a disciple. And um, I've got something. Uh, it's great you got Jesus. But have you discovered this? This special revelation? This add-on? And again, it could be the Gnostic philosophy. Or it could be the Jewish legalism. Yeah, that's great that you're saved by grace, but have you adopted this tradition and this practice to keep your salvation? At the end of the day, whatever it was facing this Colossian church, here was the equation. The equation was Jesus plus something else. Versus the gospel, which is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That Jesus is enough. That Jesus is sufficient. That what Jesus has done works. That I am saved by grace still. And this church was coming in saying, yeah, Jesus and. And this thought and this philosophy and this practice and this discipline. And so Paul's like, watch out. I don't want you to be deceived. That's what he says again in verse 4. And, and what he goes on to do is he goes on to give some practical keys to do what I've called disarm deception, disarm deception. So you can write that phrase down. We had it up on the screen earlier. Um, my uh, daughter's iPad's not working today. So. so Tim's helped me out. Disarming deception, disarming deception. This is what Paul's going to give this church. Look back at, and I want to tell you this, the way that we're studying this today, Paul's thoughts here are, um, they're kind of all over. So we're going to treat this a little bit more like that sushi thing you got, and you're just going one at a time, kind of looking at it, okay? So we're going to go a little out of order, but we'll be okay. We're reading the Bible, I promise, all right? Verse 4 says, again, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now Paul says this, though, for though I am absent in the flesh, look at verse 5, he says, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. This is so encouraging. Because after Paul throws out and points out the warning for deception, it can feel kind of discouraging and terrifying. Because here's the root issue of deception. You never see it coming. Here's the hardest thing about deception. How do you know if you're deceived? What if you're deceived into thinking you're not deceived? And so it can be kind of like, okay, am I? What am I? Who am I? Am I a butterfly dreaming? I'm a man. All right. What's going on? And I love how Paul does this. Paul points out the true reality and the, na and the nature of the pervasiveness and the, the strength of deception. But he also encourages the church to remember that in Christ, you can withstand it. That in Jesus, yes, deception is real, and deception is out there, but he says, but here's the good news. I love how he's like optimistic. He goes, I'm rejoicing that when I see you, I'm going to find you, and he uses these military terms. He says, in good order, the idea has to do with a sequence lining up, in good order with a steadfastness of your faith. Anybody want some of that? I want some of that in my life. God, help me be the kind of Christian that doesn't get out of order. Help me be the, a follower of you that holds true to what you've said, that stands in your truth with a firmness. Our world doesn't need more cool Christians. It, it doesn't need the church to have cooler lights. It doesn't need the church to have the most relevant package possible. Our world is in need of Christians who stand firm on what's true. Who receive what God has said and then root themselves in it with unapologetic conviction. Why would the world want to believe something that we don't? How can we lead people to hinge their hope, their life, their eternity on a truth that we find ourselves often moved away from. Now, this is not meant to guilt us. Let this encourage us. What Paul is hoping for us is that as God's people, we would see, yes, there's deception, but through God and his word, we have been gifted with tools to disarm deception. So deception doesn't have to have the final word. Deception doesn't have to win. Maybe in your life you hear it and you go, I just, I don't know anything different than deception. It's all you've known. It's all you've known is looking back and regretting, believing the lie. But Paul encourages us 
And he says, listen, you can be in good order. You can remain steadfast. You know, the, the root of what Paul is saying is, I want you to go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, I like the way he says it. He kind of gives a hint for what's coming. He kind of gives a little, uh, this is a, a movie trailer for chapter 2. In chapter 1. And he says, in verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, here it is, grounded and steadfast, and here's the big idea, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not moved away. Where are you today when it comes to the hope of the gospel? Where are you today when it comes to the truth of Christ? Have you moved away? Have you gotten moved by circumstance? Have you gotten moved by persuasive arguments? Have you gotten moved by your own human reasoning and theology and what Paul says is not according to Christ? Paul says, here's my heart for you. Remain steadfast. Don't get moved away. Settle in to Jesus and stand your ground. And with this heart, I love what Paul does. He gives us some keys. Let's look at some of these keys. Some keys to disarm deception. The first one, write this first one down. The first key to disarm deception in our lives, number one, is that we disarm deception, number one, by valuing truth, number one. The first way that we disarm deception in our lives is we, it starts with a desire to actually value what's true, which is a lost art in our culture, uh, and not just secular culture, because we know we live in a culture where the only thing that is true is that nothing's true. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And to that, you can often reply with, are you absolutely sure? No? Good. Truth. We don't live in a day and age that values truth. We live in a day and age that values relativism. Just whatever's true for you. True for you. Just don't let it mess with my truth. And Christians, keep your truth out of the public sector. Get up out of here. Keep it to yourself, okay? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He didn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a lifestyle, just one. Jesus spoke very exclusively about truth, which, come on, this doesn't take brainiacs to understand the value of truth. Like, we live in that, again, it's interesting, the, the, con the contradictions you have in a culture that says there's no such thing as true, but you're going to tell me you don't want people to tell you the truth in life? Well, there's nothing true? Well, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said that if you could look, if you can look through everything, eventually you won't see anything. Think about that. If you can look through everything, everything, there's nothing concrete, everything is just kind of Ooh, you know, it's ethereal, and there's no... If you can look through everything, eventually you won't see anything. There won't be any concrete reality. But we know that God leads us to be people of truth. People that have, listen, known the truth, and what has happened? That truth has set us free. And so, so what Paul starts with when it comes to the, a key to disarming deception is he begins by basically saying this big idea. Ready? Truth, it matters. The truth matters. And he shows us a couple ways. He says in verse 2, he, he's praying for the church, number one, that their hearts may be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the mystery of God. Okay? Paul is speaking directly to the consequences of deception with Christians. He's, he's speaking to what deception often costs a believer. When there's a lack of truth in our lives as the church, when we don't really know what's true, when we have no value for doctrine, we have no understanding of theology, what we're going to end up as is the very opposite thing that Paul was praying for the church. A church that has no truth, that's not rooted in Jesus, is going to be, number one, discouraged. Discouraged. What God wants for us is a people who are, listen, you know what, by the way, the truth encourages, doesn't it? When you come to, isn't it amazing when you come to grips with the truth of God and it, and it totally like shot down what you thought about God and you're like, I'm so glad that God's thoughts are not my thoughts. His truth is encouraging. When you know the truth that God is for you and no one can be against you, is that not encouraging? Now, then again, if your truth is God is for you when you're for him, 
God is for you when you do enough for him. If that's your truth, that's not encouraging. Because most of the time, I don't do enough for God. I don't pray enough, read enough, fast enough. I'm not loving to my neighbor enough. I'm not loving to my family enough. I'm not loving to God enough. Enough, that's the big word there. I'm not doing enough. Discouraging. And Paul knows what false doctrine can do to this church. It can do the opposite of what God wants to do. God, listen, God wants to raise up an army of courageous believers. You get courage from being encouraged by the truth of God. And so he says, man, that's the first thing. Truth matters. It affects the courage of your heart. And then he says, I also want you as a church, look at this, to be knit together in love. He's speaking about unity. He's speaking also in a negative sense. You could think of it as the other effect of doctrinal error in the church and heresy is disunity. As, a, as God's people, we need to understand this, okay? Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12 that he came not to bring peace between every single person in this world. Now, this, is, this kind of makes us countercultural a bit. Um, we want the peace of the world, but we understand something, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, it's like a sword that brings division. He says, this, this is so real that he says to the disciples, you'll even experience this within your own homes. A lot of us have. And it's, it's serious and it hurts. When you have everything in common with your family members except a mutual hope in Jesus. There is a natural division that causes us to be sanctified and set apart as God's people in truth. So, so a lot of times I think we take the word unity and we run with it. Unified. And, and we say unity at the expense of truth. No, the way the Bible teaches it, it's this. Unity in truth. So, so in Ephesians 4, remember where Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says it this way. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then he says to the church, therefore, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's under these truths that there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Now, there's a delineation between us and the non-believing world, but sadly, the enemy comes when he can't attack the church from the outside walls. It comes often from the inside out. And again, here a little, there a little, that false doctrine, and, and by the way, let me be clear to say, I'm talking about the essentials. Um, was it Augustine that said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, um, non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. We're talking about the essentials. Okay, at this church, and we could have a great conversation about what those are, because that, that's the hard part, too. Everyone disagrees about the essentials. It's like, you think that's an essential? That's not the gospel, though. But, but what I mean here is the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truths that, that lead us to salvation, the truths that this is God's holy word. Now, if you're in here today and you go, okay, here's the deal, Andrew. I believe in the gospel. I believe in the inspired word of God. But as of late, I have renounced my pre-tribulation rapture upbringing. Now, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would, now, what I don't think about you is, because you read our vision statement, our mission statement, our beliefs, um, we come from the tradition of Calvary Chapel. So most of our doctrine, you will see, it's in line with a history of interpreting the scriptures under the umbrella of Calvary Chapel. And one of those doctrinal beliefs is this idea that we see that in scripture, it seems that the most comforting view in eschatology, which Paul says is what we should be comforted with, is the idea that we're taken out, we're raptured, before all hell literally breaks loose. If you don't believe that, that's okay. I mean, why wouldn't you want to, you know? But I get why some people go, the reason why, even though I want to, some people go genuinely, listen, I want to. But maybe you go, I want to believe that, but I can't. Because from my understanding of God's word, this is what I, can I tell you something? That is beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful for a bunch of brothers and sisters to be united around their same father and have some good conversations about what's true? Hey, what do you think about this? This is what we're doing with this book study. A humble learning environment. So what I'm trying to say is this. As a church, we can't let the enemy divide us over secondary issues. There's too many lost people. The gospel is, is too good of news 
for us to spend our time on the periphery, periphery of what we try to bring at the center. So what we've said here as a church is our mission is to see Jesus at the center. Not your ecclesiology. Well, I think it's a collection of elders. And what's Andrew doing up there? Why doesn't someone else preach every other weekend? Okay, we can talk. I'm not a mad guy. We'll have a good conversation. I love those conversations. But at the end of the day, what's at the center of who we are is not our secondary doctrinal preference. At the center of who we are is we have a Savior named Jesus who has brought us together, who has united us together so that we could be a light to the surrounding city, a city on a hill. And we don't want to put that candle out with secondary disagreements. And so Paul says, listen, you got to watch out for that kind of division in the church. And sometimes it's through straight-up heresy. And sometimes it's just through making secondary things the central thing. So Paul says, make sure you're unified. Pray that you're unified in the truth. And truth matters not just for that, but then he also says that you might attain to the riches of understanding. Truth matters... For our assurance. Um, again, one of the big ideas of the heresy that could have been facing this church was this idea that you think you know that you're saved, or you think you know what's true, but the whole time you've been missing this, right? And here's the good news of the gospel, okay? Simple, ordinary people like Andrew Lundy, who has no idea where his high school diploma is. <laughs> no idea. True story. Simple people like me can know the most important thing that could ever be known. I don't know it all. There's one thing I do know. I know that Jesus Christ has purchased my life. I know it. I'm assured of it because it's true. And so Paul is speaking to the church. He's saying, listen, I pray that you'd experience the benefits of truth, man. Um, this is kind of big in the church today, you know. It's like, how do you feel today? It's like, well, and everyone, we have to say, good. <sighs> this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, you know. How do you feel? How are you feeling? One of my favorite pastors, preachers, his name's Alistair Begg. He said, listen, don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. How many of us need to move away from the value of emotion and move towards the value of truth? Move away from what I feel. What do I, this is how I feel. This is what's true. Regardless of how you feel today, Jesus died for your sins on a cross. Regardless of how condemned and lonely and forgotten you feel today, Jesus rose from the dead defeating your greatest enemy. Regardless of how you feel today, God is for you and no one can be against you. That's a great spot for an amen and maybe a clap for God, I think, right? We're going to get a laugh track and a clap track back there as well. <laughs> Truth matters, Paul would say. Truth matters, Okay. And so he's, he's trying to express this point. This is a key to disarming deception. It starts with the value of truth. This is what's true. God, your word is true. Um, especially because today in the church, we tend to think of Christianity as just what I need to do, right? Here's what I got to do. Here's my behavior. You know. And sometimes Bible teaching churches are looked at as like out of touch, and irrelevant. All you're doing is teaching me theological information and nothing practical. Now, um, can that happen? Yeah, right? Jesus said that we should teach disciples to obey his word. So, so we should be practical. But there's an opposite extreme to this where we're so focused on imperatives and what we should do that we forget the reason behind the imperatives, which are the indicatives, right? What Paul often says is true. That's how Paul often would write his letters. This is what's true, indicative. This is a fact. And then he would often go to this, therefore right? Do this. And so truth matters. Theology matters. And it begins by vowing that. And then um, for the next uh, five minutes, I got two points for you. Check us out. <laughs> Number two, write this down. We disarm deception. Secondly, this is huge, by treasuring Christ, by treasuring Christ, okay? We gotta first, we got to value truth. 
We go against the culture as people that say truth matters and it changes everything. What's true? Revealed in God's word. But as a people of truth, Paul goes on to say this. Did you see verse 3? He says, both of the Father and of Christ, this is, this is it right here, in whom, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's good. That'll tweet, that verse right there. In him is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This was a stick to the Gnostics who were coming along like, yeah, you found Jesus, but have you seen this treasure? And Paul says, all treasure of knowledge is not found in that book. It's not found in that university. It's not found in that professor. It's not found in that brainiac. It's not found in that scientist. All the treasures of truth aren't found in your own capacity to reason. All the treasures of truth of this universe and wisdom, Paul says, are found in Jesus. You can think of it this way. Jesus is the treasury of knowledge and wisdom. He's the treasury. Okay? It's like you play Monopoly. Back in the day, these things, board games, they're great. You should check them out. And there was always the person who's like, oh, I'm a treasurer. Treasury. It's always the real controlling person that has to be the treasurer, too. Like. And they got it all. They got the, the cash flow. And they, they're, they're giving you what you need. They're the bank. Okay? When Paul says that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, it doesn't mean uh, like hide and seek and you'll never find him. It means that if you're in Christ, you have access to them. Hidden in them means they're stored in Jesus and you have access to Jesus. His riches, Paul says, I pray that you would reach out and attain it. You would attain it. That you would treasure Christ. Can I say, this is a great just rule of thumb to make sure as a church that we are right there at the center, good ordered, steadfast in the faith. It's a great, great rule of thumb. What is it? That we treasure Jesus over everything. We treasure him. Which, Paul said, that's the best thing to do because anything that can be known, he would even go on to say, can be found in him, right? Solomon was the author in Ecclesiastes 1 who said, the wisest man who ever lived, he said, I've searched everywhere under the sun and I've discovered all the knowledge, all the learnings, all the degrees, no offense, um, all the hard work. Paul says, or uh, Solomon says, it's, it's vanity, it's meaningless is what he says. Ecclesiastes, wonderful book on the depression of the human existence apart from God. He says it's, it's, it's hopeless under the sun, right? And it's, it's as if Paul says, listen, under the sun, there's no knowledge. But in the sun, there's all knowledge. In Jesus, there's a treasury. All that can be known is found in him with meaning. And that's, the, that's really what's at the root of postmodern thinking, meaninglessness. Why are you here? Guess what? Jesus, he's the treasure of anything you could know. You want to know where you came from, your origin? Jesus. Want to know why you're here? Your meaning? Jesus. You want to know what justice is? Jesus. You want to know your destiny? Look to Jesus. Anything that we could ever want to know is found in Jesus. More than that, Paul in the previous chapter said this. Jesus is not just the explanation of all knowledge in this world. He said in chapter 1, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Why is Jesus the treasure of all knowledge? Because Jesus reveals to us the most important thing to know who God is. He shows us the Father. We've got a book that we're reading that's going to be looking at that. He's the treasury. So we have to treasure Jesus instead of grasping the wind. Um, and this is where I've seen even like some of my close friends that have veered off of the path of holding fast to truth. It started with like something other than Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus, like the gospel's great, but I need another sign, another wonder. I need another revelation. So I'm, I'm over here, I'm, I'm looking for an experience, which be careful, the Bible says test your experiences, doesn't it? To what do they testify of Jesus? And so this importance of treasuring Jesus, and lastly, lastly, world record sermon, two points, here we go. Um, last one is this, we are... Uh, we disarm deception, lastly, by studying Scripture. That's where we'll end. We study Scripture. We're students of the Word of God. Um, 
Paul says in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You've received. Now this, this is not speaking to, the context here is not about your salvation. I received Jesus into my heart. He's speaking about the faith. He's speaking about doctrine. He's speaking about truth. In verse 6 he says, as you have received Christ, who he is and what he's done, truth. Back in that day and age, it was oral teaching. It was the apostles' doctrine that was to be preserved and guarded and protected and contended for. Okay? Paul says, as you receive Jesus, this is huge, look at this, so walk in him. You've got to walk in him. Walk in what you've received. Live in what you know. And he goes on to, this is some beautiful word pictures that he uses to describe what this looks like for us, our imaginative visual learners in the room. He says, verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. He uses these two word pictures. One's an, an agricultural idea, rooted, planted in the word of God. It's an allusion, isn't it, to Psalm chapter 1, where the Psalms begin with this truth. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the path of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in God's word, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth fruit in its season. He's speaking about being in the word of God and having the word of God be in you. That's what this idea is. To be rooted in Christ is I'm rooted in God's word and God's word is rooted in me. I don't just have this form of Christianity. Like those ficus trees that are huge and amazing but a little gust of wind comes and they top over because there's no root system, right? I gotta be rooted in Christ. He says I gotta be built up in Christ. The word of God is building me up. I'm not looking to secular reason. I'm not looking to, to other counsel. I'm not looking to my horoscope. That's a horror scope. Okay, don't do that. He goes, I'm, I'm looking to Jesus and God's word. And when I'm confused and when I'm lost and I'm broken, I don't believe the lies of the enemy that says, hey, you've sinned. Therefore, God no longer wants to speak to you. I believe the good news of the gospel that says that God is always speaking and he's looking for listening ears. And he wants to build you up with his word. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to God's word. We are to be students of the word. Students of God's word. Not just students of practice and form. Students of truth. Like you remember in Acts 17. The Bereans. Remember the Bereans? Heard of the Bereans? I pray that we would be a church of Bereans. Here are the Bereans. Acts 17, 11 says that the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Throwing shade at Thessalonica, all right? He says the Bereans, this is why. They weren't, it wasn't saying they were smarter. He said they were more fair-minded. They're more noble. Well, what made them more noble? Were they more intellectual? No. Here's what it was. In that they received the word with all readiness, Acts 17, 11, and searched the scriptures daily, daily, find out whether these things were so daily in the word okay. daily in God's word okay. when you don't spend time daily in God's word it's not that you should feel guilty it's that you should feel hungry hungry stop being stop the guilt thing stop it let's just move on from that today you really love me yes I want to speak to you. Study my word. Be a student of my word. When you don't read God's word, don't feel guilt. Feel hungry. I got to eat. You know, if you didn't eat all day yesterday, it would be weird for you to go to bed and be like, I'm such a bad person. Okay? Like, eat. <laughs> Root in God's word. Establish in his word. Be like the Bereans who search the scriptures daily. Don't take one thing that I'm saying to you today and receive it as authoritative truth if it's not written in God's word. I pray that as you come in here every Sunday, here's my goal. This is, by the way, this is scary, okay? You know, Solomon, the Bible says, sorry about, uh, it was Samuel. Samuel, Solomon, Saul, there's a lot of S's, right? 
The Bible says that not one of his words fell to the ground as a prophet, right? Um, I am not Samuel. My, there's probably a ton, like if we could see into the spiritual right now, there's probably like words all over the ground right now. I'm just gonna, the janitor's gonna come in later and just sweep it up, you know? Um, a couple weeks ago, someone sent me an email and really loving, gracious email, but was listening, doesn't go to our church, but was listening to our podcast, which is like, I guess I'm I committed now. I put that thing out there. but um, And they had a doctrinal disagreement with something I said. And you know what they did? They lovingly emailed me, and they brought scripture to me. You know what I had to do? I had to say, I'm sorry. God's word is infallible. My word is fallible. And, and my desire was this. I pray next time that I will preach God's word more faithfully. And I pray, can I ask, can you guys pray that for me? Like, you, we don't want me. We, we don't want Andrew's opinions and his words. We want God's word. We want his truth. We want to search the scriptures. And, and it was a chance for me to say, you know what, you're right. Thanks for pointing that out. Because my goal here is not for everybody to go, Okay. The goal of this time is not to hear and applaud Andrew or whoever's preaching. It's to have ears to hear what the Spirit's saying, and that's what I pray. I pray we would be a church that is so in tune with what the Spirit is saying to us because we value truth, we treasure Jesus, and we study God's word, that deception, it has no place in our community. Amen? Let's invite the worship team up as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, God. Most importantly, for the fact that your truth sets us free, that we could know your truth, that God, how we feel, the mood we woke up in today, the thoughts that we are thinking today, God, thank you that those are not the authoritative words of what's true. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder today that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Help us be the kind of people. Help us be the church that is steadfast in what's true, that is rooted in what's true, that treasures you, Jesus. That's our prayer. Uh, we ask God now as we worship you, we pray that you would be the focus of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand again.